Right, well, good morning. Lovely to see you all. Um, I've got the um, honour of being able to open Advent. It's always an honour to be able to preach, but um, there's certain times of the year where you're kind of really excited about the topics that are thrown at you. In this case, Advent was just one of those ones that I was um, particularly excited about. Uh, I'm going to start, however, with, um, I was going to say a couple of warnings. Warnings is probably too strong a word, but a couple of reminders, I suppose. If you're uh, a mature Christian, if you were brought up in a Christian household, um, you get to this season and you realize that you've heard nativity every single year, possibly for, for years and years and years. And that poses a couple of, um, not problems, that's too strong a word, but it poses a couple of challenges for us. The first challenge is that we sometimes feel we're so familiar with the story that we kind of choose not to engage or to properly read it or study it. And that would be a mistake if we were to do that because of the richness of God's word, it's important that every year we remind ourselves um, of it. And of course, any opportunity to study Jesus is a good, good thing. So don't let your familiarity with the story prevent you from actually engaging with it. That's my first um, reminder, I suppose. The second one is that sometimes we can relegate the nativity to little more than a Sunday school story. And that's not to um, degrade it being a Sunday school story. It's important that we teach it to our children. Um, but sometimes there are certain stories in the Bible that we kind of look at as children and don't really look at as adults, if that makes sense. So, you know, Noah's Ark or the creation or Babel or Jonah, for example. There's sometimes stories that we look at in Sunday school and we kind of don't really engage with properly as adults. Um, you know, if I was to say, and I won't, but if I was to say, let's have a show of hands, who knows the story of Noah's Ark, everybody would probably put their hands up. But if I said who has most recently studied Genesis 6, 7, or 8, there'd probably be less hands going up because we kind of tend to feel we know that story and therefore we don't engage with it as much as adults. So again, I just want to encourage you, don't relegate it in your mind to just a Sunday school story. It's something that we need to engage with as adults as well. Finally, and, and, and um, thirdly, the danger that this can sometimes pose is that our own familiarity with it means that we think we know the story a bit better than we do. And I can testify to that because in preparation for today, I kind of got ready. I thought, okay, nativity, here we go. I'm ready for it. And I suddenly realized when I started studying that um, actually my memory of the story was quite different to the story itself. And sometimes we can let, you know, carols and we can let, you know, the nativity that the children do every year sort of thing overtake what we know rather than God's word informing what we know of it. So I just want to challenge you, I suppose, in this season, don't let this just be something we do on a Sunday. I'd encourage you to go away, read it. We've got these um, great devotionals that we can use as a church and as a family. Take the opportunity to do that, because there's more in here, I think, than perhaps all of us remember. So um, Ben asked me to preach this morning on prophecies revolving around Jesus' birth, Okay or prophecies towards the Messiah. Now, there are about 300 prophecies regarding um, the Messiah, and I'm going to preach on every single one. No, I'm not really. Um, I got as far as one, and I suddenly realized that there was so much in it that I couldn't really move on from there. So um, I'm going to just kind of talk about one this morning. But as I think you'll see, it's one for which God has a lot for us. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Micah, chapter 5. I know it's not a book we often go through, but it's about halfway through the Minor Prophets. Just after Jonah, if that helps. And um, you will have heard these verses before. We're going to start on verse 1 and just read the first two verses. 
So it says, Micah 5, verse 1, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughters of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Let's just quickly pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask this morning, uh, Father, that you would reveal yourself to us and that you would change and challenge us in that. In your mighty name, amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had a question about this since I was little. And the thing I've never understood about this, the question I've always had, is why Bethlehem? Because if you apply human logic to this, and I know that's always a dangerous thing, But if you apply human logic to this, Bethlehem doesn't make any sense. It's a tiny little town, three miles south of Jerusalem. Yes, you know, David came from there, I get that. And there's some other bits in the Bible that talk about Bethlehem. But if you're going to choose a place for the Messiah to be born, Bethlehem doesn't make any sense. If you're going to choose a place for the Messiah to be born, surely it's got to be Jerusalem. Because if we look for our Bibles, Jerusalem comes up time and time again. In Revelation, it's the new Jerusalem that we're going to kind of end up being in. You know, that's where eternity is. Um, in Acts 2, we're told that the church starts in Jerusalem. If you go through Jesus' ministry, you know, Palm Sunday, um, hailed as the Messiah, he was crucified and resurrected there in Jerusalem. If you go further back, David captures the city and makes it his capital. Then his son builds the temple there in Jerusalem. It's always Jerusalem. That's the important place. If you go further back, um, Jewish tradition states that the place of the temple, the Holy of Holies, that place was the site where the Tree of Life stood. Even back in Eden, we're talking about the place of Jerusalem. If you're going to have the Messiah born somewhere, Bethlehem doesn't really make any sense. If you were going to choose an obvious place, Jerusalem, a couple of miles up the road, that seems like the place that you would have the Messiah born. But it's not. It's Bethlehem. And God's goodness, God's wisdom, has clearly got a plan and a purpose for that. So there's a reason behind it. And I'm going to give you three reasons. Now, I don't like the first two. (laughs) But I'm going to give them to you anyway, just to be thorough. But it's the third one. That's where we're going to go to. Let's start with the first, though. The first one is a simple one. Jesus has to be born in Bethlehem because he has to fulfill every single prophecy about Messiah. If he doesn't, why are we here? He has to fulfill every single prophecy pertaining to the Messiah. Now, there was a chap, let's find his name, Peter Stoner, who was the head of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena College in America. And he was asked, and his students were asked, to calculate the odds of one person fulfilling only eight prophecies. There are up to 300, but he was asked to calculate the odds of one person fulfilling eight. Now, we're going to look to the numbers, guys, on this one, okay? Um, he, ca- he, he basically said that for one person to fulfill eight prophecies that were made hundreds of years before he was born would be one in ten to the power 17. Now, even with my limited maths, what that means is that that's one in the ten with 17 zeros after it, okay? Now, let me just get you to visualize this a little bit. He did it in an American sense. I've spent the morning kind of trying to um, recalculate this slightly in a UK sense. So that would mean taking 
10, 17 zeros, 50p coins, laying them six thick across the whole of the UK, having marked one of them first, and then blindfolding someone, asking them to walk across the UK, pick one up that they would be certain is the one that had been marked. That's the odds of one person fulfilling eight prophecies. As I said, there are over 300. Okay? Jesus is the Messiah because he fulfills those prophecies. He was born in Bethlehem because he had to fulfill those prophecies. That's reason number one. It's a pretty good reason. Okay? But there are more. The second one is that Jesus was prophesied as being in the Davidic line, being in David's line. Okay? In Isaiah 11, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, David came from Bethlehem, born and raised. Okay? The fact that he was there, um, born in Bethlehem, kind of shows he was in the Davidic line. Joseph had to return to Bethlehem because when the census was put on, they had to return to their ancestral home. Now, that's a good answer to an extent. It's a good reason. But most of my father's family come from Coventry. All right? I don't come from Coventry. I come from Harlow. I am no less of my father's line because I was born in Essex rather than the Midlands. So there must be more going on there than simply the place of being born. You see what I mean? He was... You know, Joseph's son, in a sense, and therefore he was in that line. Therefore, he was on the Davidic line, whether he was born in Bethlehem or not. So there must be more happening there. And that brings us to the third reason. Okay? Now, this is where it gets interesting. Now, when I kind of got all that together, I wasn't really satisfied with those answers. Okay? And maybe it's a historian in me, I don't know, but I did the only thing I know how to do, which is to go back to the beginning. So I looked back in Scripture and I tried to find the earliest reference to Bethlehem because that's how you need to do this, okay? So turn with me, please, to Genesis 35. It's going to, there it is, already. It's up on the screen if you need it. But this is the earliest reference that we've got to Bethlehem, okay? And it tells us, it gives us, if you like, the answer. So Genesis 34, I'm going to read a few verses down, as you can see, but bear with me. Genesis 34, 9, Then God appeared to Jacob again, and when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be faithful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and your descendants after you. I give this, la- Sorry, I give this land. Then God went up from him to the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a stone in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and poured a drink offering on it, and poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke to him Bethel. And then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing from, she died. And she called his name Ben-Oni, which his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. 
Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Edah. Now here you have Jacob, Israel, as his name is given by God, and his wife Rachel, which means you or female sheep, which is important, and she gives birth to Benjamin around Bethlehem. And Jacob, once he buries her, moves just slightly further on into the rest of Bethlehem to a place called Migdal or Migdal Edah, the Tower of the Flock. The Tower of the Flock. Now this tower is important. Around Israel at this time, certain watchtowers were built, usually for military purposes. So you'd build a watchtower, and you'd sit at the top of the tower, you'd have the guards do that, and they would be able to watch out to see if forces were attacking. Over time, as Israel became more secure, some of them were reused for different purposes. And you can already see that this one's being reused for different purposes because it's called the Tower of the Flock. In other words, shepherds have taken it, and they're using it as a place where they can keep watch over their flocks, and there's a station for where they're going to be when they're out in the fields they come back. Now, these fields around Bethlehem and this tower of the flock were still there at the time that Jesus was born. So around Bethlehem, you've still got the fields, you've still got shepherds in it, and it's still got this tower, the tower of the flock, um, where the shepherds would have been based. And that's where all of this comes into play. Now, I don't know if you like to spend your time reading Jewish commentaries. Okay, I know, I know lots of us do. I know it's a popular thing. Um, I've spent the last few weeks doing that. And in the Mishnah, which is a certain collection of commentaries um, by rabbis on scripture, um, there are some interesting points made about this. And one of them, if you want to look it up, it's Shekalim 7.4. It makes the point that at the time that Jesus was born, the sheep in the fields are not just any sheep. They're special sheep. They were the sheep that were raised and used in the temple sacrifices. Okay? So all the fields in Bethlehem, those shepherds that were called to see Jesus, they were looking after particular sheep that would be used in the temple sacrifices. Now, bearing that in mind, let's just have a quick look at Luke. Do you mind putting Luke up for me, um, Luke? Thank you. Okay, so again, sorry, another quick bit of text, but I just need to read this so you can understand the rest of it. So Luke 2, verse 6, it says, So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, now let's go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told to them. 
So you've got shepherds in a field, not just any shepherds, but certain shepherds raising the temple sacrifices, being asked to go and see Jesus. In other words, you've got shepherds who are having to determine which sheep can be used, which are unblemished, that can be used for a temple sacrifice, being asked to go and see the Lamb of God, who is unblemished, and recognize that he is the one who will make the ultimate sacrifice for all of us. You see the link between them. But there's more here. Okay, That's just the start of it. You notice in verse 7 and verse 12 that he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. Okay? Now, this was a tradition at the time. You would have strips of cloth, and you would wrap the child in these strips of cloth to keep him warm. It was a tradition right across Israel. But the odd thing that's said here, it says that these swaddling cloths will be assigned to you, assigned to the shepherds. Now, any shepherd who had seen any baby in Israel would have seen them wrapped in swaddling cloths. So it seems like an odd thing to say to them, well, this is going to be a sign to you. But we only understand that it's a sign once we understand that the shepherds are the priestly shepherds raising the temple sacrifices. Because there is something that they do with these lambs that causes that understanding to be there. There is a guy called Alfred Edersheim, who I'd um, recommend you all go and read. He spent seven years writing a book called The Life and Times of Messiah. He was a Messianic Jew who lived in the, and wrote in the 19th century. Really interesting guy. And he did a lot of work um, and, and put together a lot of sources that bring this into there. But he pointed out that we know that the robes that the priests wore in the temple were used for different things. If you go through scripture, when the priests had finished with their robes, sometimes they stripped them down and they would use them to be the wick, basically, of the big menorah candles that sat in the temple. Okay? So they would use them for different things. One of the other things that they would use them for is that they would use them and strip them down and use them as swaddling cloths. Okay? Now keep that in your head for a moment because we're going to come back to that in a moment. Notice another thing about Luke 2. It says here, verse 15 and 16, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Now let's go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. Now, the question for me is how it is they could set off in haste. If you've ever gone meet with me on a journey, you'll know that I'm not usually very prepared. I just jump in the car and hope for the best. You know? Have I checked the directions? No. Have I looked if there's any traffic? No. I jump in. Now, I doubt that that's what they were thinking because they've set off in haste. That suggests, that implies they know where they're going. Now, if you read that account again, the angels don't tell them exactly where. They just tell them it's in Bethlehem. It doesn't tell them they could see the star, although that's a possibility. It suggests they knew exactly where they were going. Yeah? How did they know where they were going? How would the shepherds know where in Bethlehem? It's not a massive town, but it's not small either. They must have some idea about where they were going. Now, if there was a prophecy over your town, you would know about it, wouldn't you? If you were in Israel at that time, there was a specific prophecy about Bethlehem. Everybody would know about it. Yeah, this is, this is Bethlehem. This is the place the Messiah is going to be born. You'd be proud of it almost, wouldn't you? If there was a prophecy over Harlow today, we would be, you know, everybody would know it. You know, we would be proud of it. 
if there was a prophecy over the building that you worked in, you would know about that as well, wouldn't you? Not just the town, but if there was a prophecy over the building you worked in, then surely you would know about that. Well, they did, because they weren't just any shepherds. They were priestly shepherds. They had to be trained in ceremonial law to be able to separate the lambs from one another. Okay? The thing that we don't often understand, the thing I didn't understand until I started preparing for today, was that prophecy in Micah doesn't start in chapter 5. It starts in chapter 4. And it tells us something else. So if you just want to turn back to chapter 4, you can see it. Micah 4.8. And you, tower of the flock. Where's the tower of the flock? It's in those shepherd's fields just outside Bethlehem. You, tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. The former dominion will come. In some translations, and you'll probably have it with you there, it says the former monarchy will return. The monarchy will return. Well, we know that's not talking about his second coming, because we know that he comes over the Mount of Olives. So when's this return? It's his birth. The monarchy shall return. What monarchy? The royal line of David. Where is this place? It's in Bethlehem. He returns. He's born into the tower of the flock. Now, at this point, I know because I did the same thing, you're probably thinking, all right, Lee, I'll, I'll, I'll take the swaddling cloths. Fine. I'll take, I'll take the priestly shepherds. All right, I can deal with that. <laughs> you can't be sure that he was born in this place because there's a place in Bethlehem that's been done up a bit like a Santa's Grotto, and you can visit it today, and they claim this is the place where Jesus is born, and that's lovely. But that's not based on Scripture. This is. And if you want a bit more, I can give you a bit more. If you want to read some other Jewish commentaries, and there are more, you could look in the Talmud, which is an even bigger um, source of Jewish um, commentaries. And I'll, I'll be honest, it's a strange series of verses. You've got to kind of wade through it a little bit. But then there is a few bits in there on the birth of the Messiah. And it says this. It says, the Messiah will be born at the palace of Bethlehem. Now, that sounds like a strange thing to say, doesn't it? Because Jesus wasn't born in the palace. We know he wasn't born in the palace. Because it doesn't tally with the rest of the scripture, does it? The problem is, that if you look up the, what the word palace means, it means castle or tower. Okay? So we've got scripture saying Jesus is going to come to the tower of the flock. We've got the commentaries around at the time saying he's going to be born at the tower of the flock, all based upon Bethlehem. Now, why is this important? Does it really matter the specific building that he was born in? Not particularly, except for the reasons that we're going to look at. The swaddling cloths, you know, I said to you, well, the robes, you were usually stripped down by the priests, okay? But we can't be sure, and scripture doesn't tell us, that the cloths that he was stripped down and put into were priestly cloths. However, as I said to you, the shepherds, had to determine which sheep were blemished and which were unblemished, which could be used for sacrifices and which couldn't be used for sacrifices. And the way they did that was interesting because the tower was on two levels. And they would take the sheep in, and when the sheep was about to give birth, they would take the sheep up to the first floor. And the first floor was ceremonially clean. It had to be kept that way for the temple sacrifices. The strips of cloth 
were in there. And we know they were in there because the way that they decided which um, sheep were unblemished and which were blemished is the ones that were unblemished and used to tepid sacrifices would be wrapped in those strips of cloth. So when the shepherds turn up and find Jesus, they're not just finding him there in a manger as the, the story goes. They're finding him in a ceremonially clean place where the lambs that would be used to sacrifice would be born and he's being wrapped in the cloths of the high priest. In that very moment, when the shepherds see him, they recognize him both as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but also as the great high priest. Because the first clothes that he's wrapped in are the clothes, the robes of the priests of the temple. In that one moment, they recognize him as those two things. If he was born in Jerusalem, would the priests have recognized that? Probably not, because it's the priestly shepherds that were the ones that were used to doing that. Now, again, you might be thinking, well, that's a lovely, it's a lovely story, Lee. You know, it's, it's, it sounds interesting, but let's be honest, it doesn't really tally with the nativity every year, does it? Because there's no kind innkeeper. There's nobody saying there's no room at the inn. There's nobody kind of pushing them off to that way. Well, the problem is, as I said to you, the third reason why it's important to look at this is because we sometimes think we know the story better than we do. If you look back at um, Luke, sorry, Luke, would you mind putting Luke back up? There's no mention of a kind innkeeper. What it does say is that there's no room at the inn. No room at the inn. The problem is, if you look the words up in Greek, then you'll find something interesting about it. Remember that Joseph and Mary are returning to Bethlehem because they are returning for the census. And Dave, uh, sorry, Joseph is returning because he is part of the Davidic line. Now, the tradition at the time is that you would just basically turn up and you would prove that you are a member of that family and, they, and people would take you in. It was customary. It was tradition. So when it says in here, the Greek word they're using, I'll try to pronounce it, is Cataluma. Cataluma. It doesn't mean in, in the Western sense that we think. When we say in, we think tavern. We think place with a room up the top. It doesn't mean that. It means spare room. In other words, when Mary and Joseph turn up, they're turning up at a relative's place and hoping that there's spare room for them. But because the census has taken place and there's everybody around them, there isn't any room. There's no spare room at the relative's house. If they were talking about, and we have a Greek word for a tavern, an inn, a place, it's used in the, um, the same gospel in the place of the Good Samaritan, and it says uh, pandokion. Luke would have used that word if he was talking about something else. So instead, Mary and Joseph turn up, and they turn up at a distant relative's house, and they ask if there's room, and there's no room in the spare room. So the only place that they can go is the place where the animals are born. Now, the animals that are being born in those fields are the animals raised for temple sacrifices. You see what I mean? So sometimes we let our own carol traditions, our nativity traditions, overtake what's actually in God's word. I started off by saying, why Bethlehem? Why not Jerusalem? It had to be Bethlehem. Because the priestly shepherds living in those fields were the ones that would recognize him. They were the ones who would be able to recognize the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. They are the ones who would be able to recognize this is the great high priest. If he'd been born in Bethlehem, 
they wouldn't, sorry, if they'd been born in Jerusalem, they wouldn't necessarily have recognized it at that time. We see Bethlehem as this tiny insignificant place, which it is in many ways. But God had constructed it and made it in such a way that the recognition of Jesus being the Messiah could only have happened there. These aren't any shepherds. This isn't just any old town. This is the place where Jesus would be recognized as the Messiah. Now, Ian and I were, were chatting to each other just before, and um, he, he rightly pointed out exactly what I had in my mind, which was the problem with looking at the nativity is that it's, it's all information, there's not much application, and he's, he's absolutely right. In many ways, it does feel like that, doesn't it? But the, there is a challenge in all of this for us. And the challenge, I think, kind of exists there in verse 17 um, down to 20. It says, now, when they had seen him, they made widely known, they're talking about the shepherds, the saying which was told to them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at these things which they were told by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. It seems to me the shepherds did something quite interesting. They knew from God's word that Jesus was the Messiah. They recognized him at that point. And what was their response? They went and they found him. They worshipped him. And then they told other people about him. They recognized him. They worshipped him. They told other people about him. And I think that is the application of nativity for us. How do we respond to that? Do we respond in the same way that the shepherds did? Or are we going to carry on throughout the Advent series and just kind of keep Christmas as we sometimes do as an internal thing? Actually, if there is a moment to be able to tell other people about Jesus, this is it. Because the shepherds saw him, they worshipped him, they told other people about him. How did they see him? Because they knew God's word. They knew Micah chapter 4, verse 8. They knew that place that they sometimes hauled up in as shepherds would be the place that Messiah was born. They recognized it in Scripture. Well, here's my challenge. I've just shown it to you in Scripture. Now, maybe you know the Lord, maybe you don't. But if you recognize him here, my heart is to say to you, come to Jesus. Because he is the Messiah. There isn't anybody else. It's just him. And our response can be one of two things. We can look at those words, we can look at the extraordinary tapestry that is God's word in the way that it's constructed and we can choose to ignore it and some people do. Or we can choose to embrace the Messiah for who he is. We can choose to come and find him. We can choose to worship him and we can choose to tell other people about him. And for me, my challenge, not just to you but to me as well, is to make this season a season where we're telling people about Jesus and worshipping for who he is, the Messiah who was told and foretold for generations. I've asked the worship team, and I don't mind, um, if they wouldn't mind just um, starting to get ready, that I thought it would be good to um, kind of end today with a carol, because it is Advent, okay, and it's time for carols. Now, I'll be honest, when I think of carols, my go-to is Once in Royal David City. I love Once in Royal David City. The problem is that once I've done this, and I realized that it said, once in Royal David stood, he stood a lonely cattle shed, I suddenly realized that theology had blasted that one out of the water, um, which is a great shame. I'm still going to sing it if we, um, if we do it, but I'm you know, under duress slightly. Um, but instead, I tracked one down. It's theologically correct. 
uh, and we're going to sing instead, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But I would encourage you, if you don't know the Lord this morning, and if you've seen him and recognized him here in God's word, can I just encourage you to come and find him and come and worship him. And if you'd like prayer, I'd love to pray with you. Thank you for listening. Amen.